The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. Deuteronomy 27. Now Moses, with the elders of Israel, commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today. And it shall be on the day when you cross over the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, that you shall set up for yourselves large stones and whitewash them with lime. You shall write on them all the words of this law when you have crossed over, that you may enter the land which the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord God of your fathers promised you. Therefore it shall be, When you have crossed over the Jordan, that on Mount Ebal you shall set up these stones, which I command you today, and you shall whitewash them with lime. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not use an iron tool on them. You shall build with whole stones the altar of the Lord your God and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. You shall offer peace offerings and shall eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God. And you shall write very plainly on the stones all the words of this law. Then Moses and the priests, the Levites, spoke to all Israel, saying, Take heed and listen, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. Therefore you shall obey the voice of the Lord your God and observe His commandments and His statutes which I command you today. And Moses commanded the people on the same day, saying, These shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people when you have crossed over the Jordan, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal to curse Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And the Levites shall speak with a loud voice and say to all the men of Israel, Cursed is the one who makes a carved or molded image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed is the one who treats his father or his mother with contempt. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who moves his neighbor's landmark. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who makes the blind to wander off the road. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who perverts the justice, do the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's bed, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with any kind of animal, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his sister, the daughter of his father, or the daughter of his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his mother-in-law, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who attacks his neighbor secretly, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who takes a bribe to slay an innocent person, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law by observing them, and all the people shall say, Amen. So let it be. They're verifying the words of the Lord and that's what Moses wanted them to do. Would 
to the Lord that they had done that over the years of their existence, but often they fell far short of that high standard of perfection in the law. All right, we turn our attention then to our sermon for this morning, which is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you would turn there in your Bibles, the last segment of this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I've titled this section, A Disciplined Servant, which I think captures the essence of the two sections of this portion of Scripture from 19 to 27. Paul commends here to us a disciplined and servant mindset to every believer. Okay? A disciplined and servant mindset to every believer. Oftentimes this passage is kind of handled under the heading of all things to all men. But we can dig in a little deeper into Paul's philosophy of ministry, his mindset to learn about that philosophy of ministry and I think go a little bit deeper than that. I mean, all things to all men is kind of catchy. It, it uh, catches your attention with the double use of the word all. And uh, it seems like it captures something of what Paul is saying, but it's actually only a means, all things to all men, to an end. And we'll see what that end is in just a moment. So let's read verse 19. It says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew. Now he's going to give us a listing of examples here. That I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. Now notice the parallel of these phrases, how they're structured. To those who are without law, as without law, now here breaks the structure a little bit, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Here's the way that Paul is commending for us to run. Run in such a way? What way? Well, this is the way. A temperate way. They do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run thus, in this way, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So I'll go back to the beginning here and let's dig into this. Two sections, 19 to 23. Uh, a servant for the sake of the gospel, and then the final uh, verses, self-control required to avoid disqualification. So Paul says in a concessive way here, although I am free, that is true, I am free from all men, but I have made myself a servant to everybody for a particular purpose. Now the idea of free here is that he had a right to support. He was a free man. 
a man who should be paid for his labor, like the examples that he listed in chapter earlier in chapter nine. Remember the farmer, uh, the soldier, and all those guys that he mentioned, workers that expected a, a, a payment for their for their work. Even the priests in uh, nine thirteen, the, the Levitical priests, they served at the temple. Well, they got their living from doing that. They were providing, you could say, the service of an of an interface between the people and God. And they had to devote themselves to that, so they needed to support that way from, from that. And so they received the offerings of the food and the, and the meat offerings from the people. But Paul, though he was free, did not use that right. Consequently, as we might recall from earlier in chapter 9, he had something to boast about. See, without this... He was just doing what God had told him to do. Here's your job description, Paul. You're to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, A, B, C. That's what you've got to do. Paul said, I'm going to do that, plus I'm going to do it free of charge so that I'll have even a bigger reward. And part of the reward is just doing that. Giving it to people with no cost, uh, not taking money from them, undercutting anybody who would say he's in it for the money and allowing them to see the free offer of the gospel from a free offerer of the gospel so that he would not uh, cause any kind of unnecessary stumbling block. So he had something then to boast or rejoice about because he was carrying out his God-given responsibilities, ABC, but he was doing it in an extraordinary way that he didn't have to do. That was its own reward, and of course we believe that it would be a reward uh, extra reward for him in heaven. But if you think about it, Paul understood very well what the Lord said as he recorded in Acts 20, I think it's verse 35, it's more blessed to give than to receive. I mean, think of the blessing that you get by giving the gospel message, seeing people's lives transformed, watching them be baptized, go on to live for the Lord. What, what, what dollar figure can you put on that? There is none. There is none that can be put on that. So, he was carrying out that divinely assigned responsibility with the boasting or the rejoicing that he could do so free of charge. He was a free person, but he didn't use that right to earn a living from the gospel. Sometimes he had to work in his tent-making ministry. Other times churches voluntarily, like Philippi, sent him money to free him up from that work and let him go on. But he says, I was free, but I've made myself a servant Un, laboring underneath others without pay. He's not even an employee. He certainly doesn't lord it over the people that he's ministering to. Rather, he gives himself freely to serve them and uses his freedom, uses his freedom to serve others. So he saw himself as a bond servant. Now, you have to kind of Time transport yourself back to this time to think about what does that mean? What does that mean that he considered himself a bond servant? In Rome, and the Roman culture, and that Greekified Roman culture that he lived in, the distinction between slave and free was just as natural as male and female, young and old, boy and girl. Slave and free. It was like no big deal. It was, I mean, no big deal in the sense that that's just how life is. There are some people that are slaves 
And there are some people that are not. And the ones that are not might actually look down upon the ones that are. And I think we've talked about this before when we talked about slavery with Philemon and Onesimus. The kind of slavery was somewhat different than what we're accustomed to thinking about in our culture. But one of the issues that comes up is that even highly skilled people could put themselves into a slavery situation so that they could have uh, some kind of benefit. Maybe they had a debt they had to pay off. Uh, they had, um, well, I mean, it's kind of, it's in a sense, we do it today, but we do it in a kind of dressed up way. Like, you know, you sign a contract with the military and they pay for your school and then you've got four or six years you've got to do a service for them. And nobody thinks twice about it. And we don't think of them as some kind of lower class citizen because they've wisely used the, uh, the resources at their disposal to get their education and then have a job. Uh, doctors would do this. Uh, people of some stature in the community because they could then have a, a, a benefactor or a patron who would pay them and provide for them and they'd have something of an easier lifestyle in some ways and then they could have some kind of advantage from this. Uh, you know, So they would arrange for themselves to do that. But Paul did not see himself as a slave to benefit himself. Right? That's where the difference comes in. He did this to benefit other people. He did that to benefit other people. So, he set aside the reality that, that he was free in order to embrace a servant-to-all mentality. A servant-to-all mentality. Now, when he did that, he was following the example of the greatest man Whoever lived, Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, Matthew twenty twenty eight. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Paul is saying, if that was good enough for him, that's good enough for me. He came to serve, not to be served. Uh, John chapter 13 and verse number uh, 15. Well, we were actually here earlier today, weren't we? In John 13 and verse 15. I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you regarding the foot washing service that He had just done there for them. Luke 22, the same. Philippians 2.7. You think about what the Lord, what Paul actually learned about the Lord and then taught to, his, taught to us in Philippians chapter 2, verse number 7. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. I don't think we're going to fully understand the gravity of this until we see like John saw the Lord in His regal, glorified appearance. And we're going to say, He did that for me? Wow. And He commands us to serve in that kind of capacity. Mark chapter 9 and verse number 35. And He sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. That example and command is not just limited to the apostles. 
or the disciples. It extends to us on September 20th, 2020, today. Now, why did Paul do this? Let that sink in just for a moment before we go to the why. We're told to be servants of all. We're told that greatness is not boasting. Greatness is not self-exaltation. Greatness is serving. Greatness is foot washing or its equivalent in our modern context as we talked about in our Sunday school today. Let that sink into us. That's part of our whole message today. Humble service, both this morning and now in this service. A disciplined servant we're talking about. Why is this? Why is this? Well, look at 19. The end of 19. That I might win the more. That I might win the more. Second, uh, I have a reference here to 2 Corinthians 8-9. Let me see what I have there. Yeah, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that through His poverty you might become rich. You think of Jesus, thinking of Hebrews chapter 12, where for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross. He, 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 took, he took in His heart, I'm going to be humiliated. I'm going to hang there, exposed to the world, <clears throat> exposed to the wrath of God, and I'm going to do that so that these poor people can be made rich. Servant of all, He became. Mm. Living as Paul did, removed possible causes of offense or stumbling blocks to the Gospel. If the offense was financial, he didn't take money. If the offense, was, uh, offense could be dietary, he didn't eat meat. Remember that from chapter 8? If I cause my brother to offend, I just won't eat that meat anymore. Uh, if, if it had to do the, the possible barrier to the Gospel with attire or language, he adjusted accordingly in order to win the more. For yourself, you have to know the way Paul saw himself and the reason that he saw himself this way. What was Paul's, you could say, psychology of himself? He saw, he knew what he was. He was free. He was at liberty. He had certain rights as an apostle. He had certain freedoms as a Christian, but he didn't use the freedoms. He didn't use the rights. He set them all aside for something greater. He thought of himself. He saw himself as a servant so that he could serve people in a better way. He felt no selfish need to hang on to his particular ethnic or cultural identity or his power or his status or his esteem. The reason he did this was for the purpose of bringing people to salvation. So when we talk about being a disciplined servant, another thing we're going to talk about here is... Discipline has a goal. It has a, an end in mind. And Paul's goal is very clear. His, it's a very intentional. It's very purposeful. Uh, his, his life is very, you could say, goal-directed. And this is the goal. To win the more. Now, Paul doesn't get into all the theology of predestination like we did gloriously yesterday in our study and all of that. He knows all of that. But he knows that the means of salvation 
is nothing other than the proclamation of the Word of God and we're to be busy about it so that we can win the more. Now, verses 20 to 22 kind of break this down into little pieces or examples, if you will, of what, how he does this. How does he, we could say accommodate, but I don't like the word accommodate in, in Christian theology. Accommodate often has a, a bad connotation, like a watered down kind of thing. We could say that he uses an adaptive strategy. That sounds really highfalutin, doesn't it? An adaptive strategy for his gospel ministry. And here's how it is. Here's how it looks. And to the Jews, I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. Now, that seems strange that Paul would say that, that I became as a Jew because in Philippians he said, look, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, an Israelite of the Israelites, an Abrahamic son of, if there ever was one, I'm it of the tribe of Benjamin and circumcised the eighth day and everything. I have it all. I was, according to zeal, you know, the law, blameless, everything. How could he be thinking now, well, this actually shows you how he was thinking. There are Gentiles and there are Jews. By the way, remember slave-free, male-female, boy-girl, Gentile-Jew. That is just, that's like baked in and it's so baked in, you can't scrape it off the off the you know the tin and from the oven. It's just in there. That's how you think. That's how you look at people. There are slaves and there are free. There are Gentiles and there are Jews. There are high class and low class or caste, whatever. That that thinking was just built in in their culture. We don't think about it because we think, oh, everybody's got to be totally equal. But that's not how most of the world has looked at people all these years. I'm not saying right or wrong. I'm just saying, look. When you live in a certain culture, you're kind of stuck with it. You know, they don't, it doesn't change all that easily. So he saw Jews and Gentiles, and then he saw himself. What is he? Well, according to 1 Corinthians 10, he would be, he'd consider himself as part of the church. Jews, Gentiles, and the church of God. So he looked at himself as a separate, he's been lifted out of that situation of the Jews and their cultural uh, ethnic identity. And he felt that he was different than that, but that he would become as a Jew in the ways that he could in order to win them to Christ. So, how did he do that? Well, he could still offer some sacrifices. He did that. Uh, the Bible tells us in Acts, do you find that astonishing? Uh, Acts 18. Look at Acts 18. If you know, I don't think we can say, "Poor Apostle Paul, he was kind of confused." You know, he didn't he didn't kind of know that you don't have to give sacrifices anymore. No, he very well understood about this. And this is 20 years or more after. Uh, well, it's approaching 30 years more after Christ died. This is not like it just happened, you know, the, the death of Christ and his resurrection happened yesterday and they're kind of confused about what to do. They were not, Paul was not confused. Uh, Acts 18, verse number 18, it says, Paul remained in Antioch a good while. He took leave of the brothers and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him and he had his hair cut off at Sancria for he had taken a vow. So that was a connection there. At 21, verse uh, 26, 
Acts 21.26, Then Paul took the men the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification. This is a Jewish purification ritual. At which time an offering should be made for each one of them. So he understood offerings to be not entirely incompatible with his Christian life. Somehow, some way. He could, uh, he could have maintained a kosher diet to avoid offense to those people who uh, he was witnessing to. Or what did he do with Timothy in Acts chapter 16? He took Timothy and had him circumcised in order to avoid unnecessary offense with those Jews who were in the area. He could celebrate the cultural forms of Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, which is from Friday until today, that celebration of the Jewish New Year uh, even today. He could you know, celebrate those cultural forms. But here's the difference. Here's the difference. His motivation for doing so was entirely different than what it was before. Why would you, why would you keep the law when you were in the, in the pre-cross, you know, fair, under the Pharisaical teaching? Why would you keep the law? In order to gain merit with God. It was a works-based system. Paul could do some of those cultural forms and things without that motivation at all. So some of his external behavior might look the same, but his motivation was entirely different. Okay? He used to think that he had to keep those forms to be right with God. Now he knows that's not the case. So he can become as a Jew. Now, could he offer a sin offering? No, he could not. He could offer a peace offering or a free will offering or a thank offering or a vow offering. He couldn't offer a sin offering a burnt offering like that because he knew that his sin was cared for and there was no need for that. So there were limits to this, but there weren't it wasn't like, you know, he just abandoned the whole thing lock stock and barrel and said I can't have anything more to do with that. Then he says in verse 20 uh, again verse 20 920 by the way. Uh, he says to those who are under the law as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. This is kind of similar to what he's talked about here before, maybe more focused upon the, the elements of the law of Moses as opposed to the cultural elements of the Jewish faith. And then he says, to those who are without law, verse 21, as without law. Now, what does he mean by that? He's saying, well, to the, to the Gentiles, I adapt the form of my conduct and ministry in a way that does not you know, mess with the Gospel, doesn't change the message. And in fact, he says, you know, kind of in the parentheses here, if, as, if to, as if to assuage the conscience of those who say, what do you mean, Paul? You just jump in and out of the law at will? Like it's okay, sometimes it's okay to be under the law and other times not? He says, no, it's not that I'm without law toward God. I'm obeying the highest law. I am, the, I am, in fact, under the law of Christ. Look, I'm not under the jurisdiction of the Mosaic Law anymore. Uh, even if I put myself into some of those cultural forms and practices. But I am under the jurisdiction of the law of Christ, which, you know, ultimate law of Christ, the law of love, the law of loving God, loving neighbor as yourself, Matthew 22, 37-40. No problem 
adapting to various situations, always loving God first and loving neighbor as himself. No problem. There's no lawlessness here, as, as we might say, antinomianism, none of that. Then he says, to the weak, I became as weak. Why? Uh, and, and what about the weak? Well, that was all in Romans chapter, or sorry, First uh, Corinthians chapter eight. Remember the weak conscience? Can't I can't eat this meat because it was offered to an idol, and I think the idol was a real thing. That connection is wrong because that young Christian's theology has not been, you know, brought up to a level yet. It's just very basic. But uh, Paul said you can't violate that conscience. So if you're weak. I'm going to live with those who are weak as if I am also one of them in order that I might win the weak. You notice he says this over and over and over. To all men, he became what was needed. He adapted as needed that he might save, what does he say? Some of them. He knows he cannot save all of them. That's clear. He wants to save some. And uh, the bigger the sum is, the better it is in his mind. But, you know, yeah, I mean, are, many, are there many that will be saved? Well, many called, but the Lord said, few chosen. Paul knows that. But, you know, out of, out of uh, 115,000 residents in Ann Arbor, we can hope for some. Some. 40,000 students, we can hope for some. We might not get 40,000. Our building isn't that big, okay? We have to do something different. But, I mean, a few, some. Now, in the circumstances in which Paul found himself, he never compromised the Gospel. I have to understand that. People talk about this as if you know, Paul adapts to some, you know, even to a level of syncretism, almost. No, he doesn't. He doesn't adapt the Gospel or change the truth. He's not a malleable, shape-shifting a uh, pandering apostle to whoever he was with at the time. He was not manipulative. What he did was appropriate. Uh, he adopted appropriate and effective social and cultural practices to allow him to have an entree into the lives of the people that he was ministering to. Maybe he dressed appropriately for that culture, had a diet that would not offend or be unnecessarily distracting. Perhaps he, he showed himself as just a, a regular person a certain, you know, a lowly person, a servant person to those folks, a helpful person to them, not a high society, look down the nose type at the people that he came in, and certainly not going in and saying, you know, you've got to change your entire culture and ways of life and all of that. Those areas of life that are not sinful, different culturally, different ways of doing things, let them alone. Let them alone. A Christian can be a Christian in any culture. Of course, there are cultural forms that do need to be rooted out uh, in a culture if the Christians can have enough influence to make that happen. Wonderfully, that has happened in a number of ways in our own society, in our own world today. Now, again, why is this? Another purpose statement. He does this all for the sake of the Gospel. Verse 23 that I may be a partaker of it with you. So, here's the thing. The Gospel drove everything Paul did. Hear that again. The Gospel drove everything Paul did. 
the bottom line did not drive everything Paul did. Okay? The financial aspect did not drive everything that Paul did. His own selfish desires did not drive everything that Paul did. This is imperative for every Christian to live this way. You're not going to find comfort or an excuse here to, uh, to say that you, know, you can live a life that's not entirely directed by the Gospel. Paul saw himself as a person who was a servant of Christ all the time. And if we could do this, we could just take Paul's playbook and just tear that page out of it and take it for ourselves. That's my way too. That's how I want to live. Now, the end phrase has some debate associated with it, but I'll, think, I'll give you what I understand it to refer to. He says, I, that I may be a partaker of it. I don't think he's saying that I want to be a partaker of the Gospel like, you know, to make sure that I can be saved by doing this. I think what he's saying is, I'm a partner in the Gospel advance or endeavor. Let me uh, use it, uh, an illustration like this. If, if I were to say, or if somebody were to say to you, I'm a partner in such and such law firm, you'd understand what they mean, right? I'm a co-investor in this business, you would understand what they mean, right? That's what Paul's saying. I'm a partner of Gospel Inc. That's my life. I'm an investor in that LLC. I am all in. I mean, I'm not like... That's actually an interesting illustration. I didn't think of this before, but he doesn't diversify his assets into all kinds of different asset classes. You know how you're supposed to invest in 401ks and all that stuff, right? He doesn't diversify. He's all in. Everything is in for the Gospel. He is a partner in Gospel Inc., a co-investor, a fellow worker in that company, if you will. And so that's his attitude. Now, in order to do this, Paul tells us that we need self-control to avoid disqualification. Look at 24-27. through So he's driven by the Gospel. That's what we ought to be. Our, our lives need to have that kind of clear-minded aim to it. It takes a concerted effort to live a life like this. It's a life that's hard because you give up your rights and your liberties. It's a life that's difficult because you limit yourself to please those, in a sense, who are around you. Now, let me just make a point about that. We always are concerned about pleasing God. But in as much as we can please men by this kind of adaptive strategy, that's fine. But we're not ultimately pleasing them. You get the nuance there? Paul says, look, if I was here to please men, I wouldn't be preaching the Gospel because they hate it. So, it's in that context of pleasing God ultimately and preaching the Gospel that he has to do what he can to make his ministry strategy adaptive. And Paul likens the difficulty of this to a regimen of athletic training and then competition. He uses a foot race and a, and a fight here as two illustrations of it. I'll kind of focus on the foot race more than the other. But he says, I want you to live in such a way as to win the first place prize. Run with direction and purpose and energy. 
Live with an attitude to win, not an attitude to lose. Now listen, I am not saying this in some kind of you know, inspirational uh, speech kind of way. You could take that and lift that out and say, look, you need to, to live to win. And you know, really buttress all that with all kinds of illustrations and rah-rah and get your attitude up and you'll be a success. We're talking about living to win for the Gospel's sake. Not living to win personal success and fame and fortune and and influence on people and all of those sorts of things. To win is a metaphor for living a self-controlled life that is worthy in the end of the crown of life. And he tells us in verse 25, everybody who competes for the prize is temperate. That is self-controlled. Look, it's not... It's not it's not exciting. It's not like um, you know, uh, like that. Uh, like I was saying, that kind of rah rah, you know, uh, pep pep rally type stuff. This is this is hard work. Every day you get up, and you are in your Bible, and you pray, and you live for the Lord, and you do your work, and you lead your family, gentlemen, especially responsible for that. You go to church. You live a disciplined life, not a crazy all-over-the-place life where you don't know what you're doing, running around like a chicken with your head cut off. Get the goal, get it straight, and just live it. A regular old, boring life directed to the Gospel. Incrementally improving day by day. You might not feel it from yesterday to today, but you know what? Incremental little improvements every day getting closer and closer to the Lord. The athletes that are at the Olympic level or professional level, think of what they do for their... I mean, the gymnasts and the track stars and the swimmers and and all of that. Think of what they do in order to receive a little circle of metal hanging around their neck of gold or silver or bronze. And, and it's you know the fame with it and now the endorsements and the money and all of that sort of thing. But think of that. What they do for that. In, the, in this day and age, you had the Isthmian Games and the Olympic Games, the ancient Olympic Games, and they would receive a wreath like I think of it like a vine with some green leaves on it, wound around, stuck on your head. Glorious, you know. And the leaves die a few days later and it's gone. You've done all of that work for that. We are living for the crown of life, not for a crown of a vine with some leaves on it. Paul says further, verse 26, I run in this way, not with uncertainty, I fight in this way, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. Notice what Paul's aim is. We go back earlier where we've been to see this aim. His intention is to preach the Gospel. It's to not hinder the Gospel. It's to win the more. It's to win the Jews. It's to win those who are under the law. It's to win those who are without law. It's to win the weak. It's that He might by all means save some. It's for the sake of the Gospel. That's my life. That's what I'm doing. You know, He's not aiming at nothing. Again, as the inspirational speakers say, if you aim at nothing, 
you'll hit it. Yeah. But if you don't aim for the gospel, the advance of the gospel, if you don't plant seed, you're not going to get any fruit. Easy enough. In our entire life, we need to be like Paul as well. In our entire lives. So do think of it. I think I've left in my your copy of the notes here this paragraph. You don't have a Christian life as opposed to the other parts of your life. You with me? I was going to say, in your Christian life, you need to act like Paul. No. Get rid of Christian. In your life, which is a Christian life and nothing other than a Christian life. You see that? You don't have a Christian life over here and your married life over here and your hobby life over here and your work life over on the other side. You have a Christian life, period. That's all you are if you're a Christian. And you need to live that whole life like the Apostle Paul is illustrating for us here. Directed, driven, guided by biblical priorities. It's helpful sometime to sit down and Maybe with a pad, a paper, and a pencil, sit in a quiet spot in your house and put at the top, what am I doing? Question mark. Now fill out the page with what you're doing. And now ask yourself, why am I doing what's written on this page? Is it for the sake of the Gospel? Why am I motivated to do what I'm doing? You know, if you don't know what you're doing, you need to figure it out. And if you don't know why you're doing what you're doing, you need to figure that out. And you may need to change your motivation and your direction and your goals if you need to do different things with the resources that God has given to you. Otherwise, you might be guilty of what Paul is saying here, running with uncertainty. You might be guilty of beating the air. Why would you waste your time doing that? Paul takes his body and he disciplines it to bring it into subjection. I think he's talking about his flesh, his sinful nature here. You are the master of your body, my friends, by God's power and spirit. Your body is your instrument of righteousness. It's a tool for God. You either decide to master your body Physically, now I'm just going to use the illustration for physical exercise. You either decide to master your body or it will turn to flab. Right? You'll grow overweight, heart disease, all that stuff. But if you control what you eat and what you drink and what you, how you exercise and the activity level, you'll be in better physical shape. It's the same in the spiritual realm. Paul said bodily exercise does profit a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, for the life which now is and of that which is to come. So your sinful self can rule the roost. You know, always eating Cheetos and potato chips, spiritually speaking, and you're going to turn into a piece of flab. Or you can say, I'm in charge here and I'm going to live for Christ. I'm going to bring myself into subjection. I discipline myself. Why? Because if you don't, Paul fears disqualification. Look at verse 27. Lest when I have preached to others, 
I myself should become disqualified. Now, some people ask, what does that mean? Well, I'll tell you one thing. It sounds bad. It's bad. Okay? Now, how bad is bad? Well, some people say that Paul looked at himself and thought of himself as potentially giving evidence that he was not truly born again. Now, some have looked at it and said, well, Paul is fearing that he could lose his salvation. But that's, that's ridiculous theology. That's false theology. So we, turn, we just put that right off the table, just dump it off the edge of the table and forget about that. But some do say that you know, being disqualified, being thrown out of the race, suggests that Paul thought he could be losing out on salvation entirely, that he never was saved to begin with. I don't think that's the case at all. But I would say this, that Paul does have a healthy concern that he is in the faith. In fact, he told the Corinthians in the next letter in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves to see whether you be in the faith. Are you real? Or is this all fake, what we're, what we're experiencing here? So the other option is disqualified means a loss of reward. Being thrown out of the race is embarrassing, humiliating. You know, you didn't follow the rules, the, the lane markers or the or whatever the rules are for that particular competition. You know, you're throwing the shot put and you got went out of the circle or whatever. You're out. There's no chance for winning the prize at the end of reward. You've just lost. Uh, so you're not able to continue to serve perhaps in some capacities. You don't qualify for the winning prize or any prize at all. There are certain sins that do disqualify for ministry and the reproach is difficult, if not impossible, to remove. Paul takes pains to flee from those things. God, spare us. Help us. Keep us away from those. We're humble enough to know that we can, like Peter, we can deny the Lord. We can fall into sin. Perseverance. You know, he doesn't want to be disqualified. How damaging that would be. Ultimately, he is talking about a crown of life in this passage, but then there are rewards associated with that life, and we don't want to be disqualified from those rewards. Now, you know, don't please think that I'm saying that, you know, if you've committed certain sins or done certain things in your past, that there is absolutely nothing left for you. That's not true. God takes sinners of all types and descriptions of all problems and difficulties and He uses them and is gracious to reward them for their lives of service to Him. Regardless of whatever view you take of this bad thing of disqualification, it is a strong warning for us. And and here's what God does with warnings in the Bible. Why does He put them there? So we won't go there. Right? He puts the fence so that we won't climb over or under the fence. That's what the purpose of biblical warnings are. As serious as they may sound, they're real. Perseverance and faithful service are responsibilities laid upon us and these warnings help us to do that. So the Bible urges us in conclusion to have an intentional self-disciplined life directed at the Gospel to serve others. 
If somebody asks you, why are you doing that? However you're living, whatever you're doing, and you can't answer with a good reason, then you need to start from the beginning and figure out what am I doing and why am I doing it? If the reasons have nothing to do with honoring God and and working for the Gospel, then you need to rethink your position. If you do not see yourself as a servant, then you need to check your motivations. You need to look at yourself like Paul looked at himself, serve like Paul served with certainty, with direction. I know where I'm going. I know what I'm doing. And then you will please God and receive that fullest of full and glorious rewards from the Lord Jesus Christ. Our job, what is our job here in this church? To preach Christ, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor striving according to His working which works in me mightily. That's the Apostle Paul, friends, who's saying, why am I doing what I'm doing? Ultimately, so that all of the people of God to whom I have an influence will be presented perfect, blameless before the throne of God. That will be my glory and crown right there. If everybody in this assembly that we have contact with some lost people that we know would get saved and come along and grow and be able to cross over that symbolic Jordan River gloriously whole and saved and walking with the Lord, that would be a blessing to my soul and I trust to yours as well. That's why we're in this, so that we would not lose that reward. Let us be gospel-directed. Let us be humble, disciplined servants today. Amen. Our Father in Heaven, we call out to You to help us with this. As humble as the delivery of this message has been, as it doesn't matter in a sense because we have the written Word of God which is laid before us and it's, been, it's very clear as we read it. I pray Your help, Lord, that we would live for You, that this service would be just another step, incremental though it may be, in our advance for the sake of the Gospel. We pray Your help. In Jesus' name, Amen.